How They Train is brought to you by Pillar Performance. In 2022, I stopped training for triathlon for the first time in my adult life. And instead, I mainly focused on building this podcast. But towards the end of 2022 and into 2023, I've decided to get back into some long course racing. This is what led me to try Pillar Performance's Triple Magnesium for the first time because I was always waking up feeling completely wrecked in the mornings for my training. The Triple Magnesium seriously changed the game for me, but something I've also been trialing is Pillar's Ultra B Active first thing in the morning. I started this after hearing Jan Fredino talk about it. He was sort of saying that it's, um, it's the Pillar product he takes every morning like it's his morning coffee because he just feels way more energetic in his training throughout the day. Ultra B Active is packed full of high-dose vitamin Bs, including activated B12. Now, for endurance athletes, vitamin Bs are vital as they assist in converting carbohydrates into usable energy. One thing I've learned throughout my time in this podcast, particularly talking to high-end coaches and even some off, uh, off-air conversations I've had with dietitians, is that carbohydrates matter and that fueling your training it matters. And I used to be one of those people who was a bit blasé about it. I would even try some things like not eating before training regularly and not eating enough during training. Then I'd always wonder why do I feel so shit for my second training session of the day? Or like, why do I wake up the next day feeling so crappy? Um, And this combination of taking in more carbohydrate, but also using ultra B active is like, it's sort of done what, what the triple magnesium powder did for my sleep to my training. Like I just feel so energetic. I haven't bonked this entire time I've been back training, which has been like two months now. Um, I'm, I'm also just happier when I training, like I'm having conversations with people. I'm always bubbly and laughing and I never used to be like that. I used to be like that person out training who would be like a bit of a downer a bit. Cause I just was so flat and tired and it was because I was eating like, like not enough and, um, and I was sleeping shit, but Seriously, I like I know it might sound a bit a bit crazy, but I'm sleeping the best I ever have and I'm the most energetic I've ever been in training. And I put a lot of it down to these two products I take from Pillar. So if you're like me and, and you take triple magnesium religiously already, I reckon that you should try or consider trying Pillar's training essentials bundle, which combines the, as you know, non-negotiable in my opinion, triple magnesium powder with Ultra B Active. And it includes Pillar's Micro Shaker and Travel Pill Tin as well. This way you get the combo of like great sleep and great recovery through Triple Magnesium, but also the energy production with Ultra B Active. Anyone new to Pillar, this is the combo I now always recommend. This is available in Australia. And considering the guests we have today, many of you Brits will be pleased to know it is also in Europe slash the UK. So using the HTT20 code, you'll get 20% off an already discounted bundle. Pillar Performance's Triple Magnesium, 30 minutes before bed every night, and then Ultra B Active directly after breakfast every morning. The link to buy them is in the show notes, or just Google Pillar Performance and head to their shop. And remember, use code HTT20 at checkout, and watch your energy levels around training feel the best they ever had, and support the show. Alistair Brownlee, welcome to How They Train. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows one thing about me, and it's that I bloody love Alistair Brownlee. There are three things guaranteed in this life, death, taxes, and that when the greatest triathlete of all time debate comes up, I will start arguing the case for Alistair Brownlee. 
At his best, Alistair is the most dominant triathlete the world has ever seen. No one has ever been better over the Olympic distance. When talking to the current Olympic distance world champion, Leo Bergier, he said that the guys winning Olympic distance races at the moment still would not come close to beating a prime Alistair Brownlee. Alistair, I want to take you back in time a bit to start this to your 2009 to 2012 period of racing where you were essentially unbeatable by other humans. Ultimately culminating in you putting in the greatest single triathlon performance the world has ever seen at the London Olympics to win gold. The first favourite leading into an Olympic triathlon to ever win gold and on home soil with none of the best athletes in the world missing from the race. Can we start by talking about the training you were doing in this period, Alistair, and what were you doing that made you so unbeatable? Yeah, well, that's going back a long time now, to be honest, nearly 15 years. So it does feel like a, a, a an awful long time ago. Um, so, yeah, I think for a bit of background, so 2009 was actually the first year that we had a triathlon world series, um, which we all know and love now. Before then, it was a World Cup and a, a single day world championship race in 2008 had raced at the Olympic Games and as a as a 20 year old got there qualified the last minute got on the start line and basically blew up with about three or four k to go and came 12th um but up till that point three or four k to go I was you know right in the mix and I, I went away that winter thinking you know what um that was a massive positive if I can I was there for 90 percent of the race if I can get the remaining 10 percent of the race in the run which was always my strong point you know that's what I'd grown up doing more than anything um I can be you know I can be world class and winning these races and that's what that's what I want to do so I went away 2008 probably stepped almost training up a a little bit um and 2009 uh, turned up my first world series race that year in Madrid and won that race and and went on to win the world title that year in 2009 and then obviously it was all about the build-up to the Olympics in, in 2012 that I'd known about since I was a 17-year-old kid. So, um, yeah, that, that was a massive focus um, and held a massive kind of presence in my mind every day, getting up every day to train in pretty much all of those seven years. Um, in terms of the training, I guess, that I was actually doing, I, I had a over the previous 10 years, I guess, I'd built a structure um a weekly structure of, of training which was mostly five swims in a week that I always did in the morning Monday to Friday um running most days if I was really if I was really pushing the running uh, I'd be running every day in twice quite a lot of days and riding my bike pretty much every day as well uh, with a couple of gym sessions and physio and massage on top of that um it, the haphazard nature which I came came built up that uh, kind of genuine training week had happened over 10 years of, of just being an amateur schoolboy athlete and fitting in the right training on the on the right days. Can you sort of take us inside this a little more specifically because I've obviously like I've read uh, read the books that you've written and, and heard you know every interview you've done probably and I've heard you describe that sort of training structure you had so many times but I've never fully understood like exactly what you you did like i mean there's obviously a few famous sessions you do like your your bike shop or local group ride and and then like you're swimming at at the pool every morning and and like your runs along that little creek path you have but like uh, other than knowing broadly what you do like specifically what were you doing back then like 
what were your run sessions looking like? Were you, what were your, of those five, five swims you were doing in the mornings, were they all quality? Like how, how long were they? And then your riding, were you, were you ever doing sessions or, you know, cause like a lot of the time it sort of just seems like you're out there just riding and, and just enjoying riding. But yeah, I've always wanted to know like what exactly did those, those training weeks look like? Um, not just the, the sort of like, Hey, here's the training structure and broadly what we did, but like what specifically were you doing? Yeah, so I think there was a few overarching philosophies. The first one is that actually there was no big sessions. It was all about just turning up day in, day out, getting through the sessions. And my mentality was always, I have to be able to do this session on my bad days. And on my good days, it's going to feel great. On my bad days, I'm going to grit my teeth and get through it, but I'm going to be able to do it, Um, even if I'm ill, whatever. Um, And there'll, there'll have been years there where, you know, I had injuries, but... Apart from that, I would have not missed a single session. And, you know, missing a session to me would mean turning up on a morning and swimming uh, 100 reps if I'm swimming them hard and being more than a second where I should be off. So really specifically close. Um, So in general, I guess, so swimming first, there's a basic structure of five swims a week of an hour and a quarter to an hour and a half. Um, Most of those, most of it would have been aerobic swimming um, in terms of probably three sessions and most of the session within the session would be aerobic swimming like long warm-up and depending on the time of year there will have been two faster more specific sessions one which uh, I guess is kind of a standard long vo2 max lash into kind of a extended vo2 max threshold session which was normally built around hundreds or 75s or 150s I, I guess getting in like 2k of work that I was always trying to swim at 65 per 100 pace or faster. And it really the um, the key for me on those sessions was how low I could get the recovery down. So I could always swim fast or at that speed, but um, you know, doing them on a 125 turnaround is a very different thing to doing them on a 140 turnaround. And so I've pretty much actually in most of my training different ways I've been very recovery focused as, as much as anything else even the aerobic long training I've always had very uh, has been very prescriptive it, I kind of had an insight quite early on that triathlon really at its heart is about efficiency um, and you get efficiency I felt by well in the pool particularly by being really good at swimming at a particular pace and day after day, week after week, turning up and seeing how easy I could make swimming at that pace. So even when I was in long aerobic sessions, swimming at 80 or 75 pace, I was going out and swimming reps. And, you know, I could even now I can get into a pool almost on any day uh, and be blindfolded and and swim almost exact paces. And because I I spent an entire career seeing how easy I could possibly make it for myself to swim an 80 second hundred um, over and over again so, that, so I guess that was a, a base philosophy around swimming cycling yeah um, the vast majority you know you, you see various breakdowns of percentages of um, easy aerobic training to harder stuff now but I would say my vast majority through most of the year I was doing aerobic riding that might kick off from time to time if we raced up a hill or something or race to a sign but yeah, I'd say aerobic riding and really at the lower end um, on average of what people would consider aerobic riding. You know, you hear lots of people talk about 
zone riding now, but I would suspect even at the time I wasn't riding with a, a power meter, knowing what I know now, I'd, I imagine if I was going out doing a four hour ride, I wouldn't have been averaging 200 watts. Um, and that's average, you know, it does your uphills, downhills, being sat on the wheels, being sat on the front, it, it all kind of affects it, but really low, low level um, aerobic endurance training. And then, yeah, there would be specific things. I'd go out and do something like hill reps um, at certain times of years to of the year to build into stuff. And yeah, a key session of my week would at a time would always be a local chain gang, which to be honest is really an hour of spiked um, threshold to, to VO2 training, I guess is how you describe it if you were trying to actually articulate what it was, but in a really competitive, really tough environment where other people were pushing you. Um, and that was my, I guess, main um, main intensity for the week. And there'd be other things, like I said, hill reps or various other rides throughout the year that I'd do. Um, and then, yeah, running-wise, running every day. Um, and I, I actually did got through quite a large part of my career only doing one session a week, which would have been a five or six K track session on a Tuesday. Pretty much the rest of the running I was doing was aerobic with a, a long run on a weekend on a Saturday or Sunday up to an hour 40 um, track session. Yeah. Just standard five um, K sessions on the whole, you know, we'd do something like 10, 12 fours or five, six, eights up to five by a K in the, kind of really <clears throat> key times when we were doing big sessions um and then once we started doing sessions on a saturday that became kind of 10k worth of effort on the grass and or on a or on a trail broken into long reps um running quick but not mega quick on relatively slow ground and, and the rest of the time was mostly aerobic running and with that week, Alistair, I guess because like a big part of what you're saying is that you would just not miss sessions and um, and even even like inside that, you would not miss certain time cycles in sessions and you were just super almost anal about consistency. Like that's what your training program sounds like it's built on. It's built on consistency over a long period of time. How many hours per week were you consistently doing at that time? Yeah, I think consistently, consistency and progressive overload. Um, so everything would just build slowly on each other. All the sessions would, especially going into the season, probably in two or three blocks building up with maybe a rest or a race in there and, and building back up. Um, the hours, I actually didn't really record a massive amount of my, my training at the time. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, literally wouldn't run with a watch or ride with a bike computer. Um, and when I did record it, it was very, very much back of the flood packet. I think that was a four hour ride. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I think it would have been easily, you know, averaging nearly 35 hours, uh, especially probably 30 to 35 hours for the whole year. And then big weeks would have been 35 hours and a bit more. Um, there are weeks and periods when I've done considerably more than that for periods, um, but yeah, not definitely not of a, a kind of average basis. Alistair, that's like, I think the modern triathlete, even the modern like age group triathlete or the modern um, triathlon fan would find that like quite crazy really that 
in my opinion, there's never been a, a triathlete on their day who has achieved the the level of performance that you have, like multi, on multiple occasions. But specifically, like your London Olympic race in 2012 is, in my mind, there there hasn't been a, a performance that's that's even really come close to being as good as that. I mean, Gustav Eden's performance at Kona this year was pretty good, as was Jan's in 2019, and there's been a few other short course performances that were good. But your day at London in 2012 is like it's the peak of triathlon performance that we've seen as a human race so far. And, and you weren't, you weren't using like power meters, really. You weren't using lactate. You weren't even recording your, your training on a, on a Garmin. And it's sort of like just guesswork for you a little bit. Oh, I think like I was doing roughly this. I'm not, I'm not even fully sure. <laughs> and like that, that seems so crazy to the the current triathlon fan, doesn't it? But is it just because, is it just because you loved the training? Like it wasn't even necessarily like this big scientific endeavor, endeavor for you or it was just because you, you, you loved it? No, it was super scientific um, at heart. And, you know, by nature, I actually have a, a really scientific analytical analytical background. Um, and I have always obsessed and really studied the, the science around it um, and was doing all kinds of things, you know, using altitude tents, in early days experimenting with um you know types of nutrition and trying to boost myself uh, you know really working on um trying to fuel as effectively as possible for olympic distance and, and all those kind of things um so I, I was doing that i just always kind of had a, a golden rule that um if i'm recording something and if it doesn't change what i do tomorrow um then i'm actually going to stop recording it because it's not really adding and i think in the kind of answer to that yeah for for sure um uh, i could have recorded more but i think really what it did is it made me hyper focus on um the intensity that i was going at and i did so much off feel at the time um, and it made me hyper focused on what i was doing and how i was performing and how i was feeling that day and um, if I was going to the pool and swimming um, 80 pace over 800 meters or something, I should know how that felt. And that day it didn't feel too good. And then, you know, the next hundred, I would adjust something with my stroke and that would feel a bit easier. And then I'd adjust it a bit more and it'd feel a bit harder. And so I'd go back. So it's a constant kind of iterative process. Um, and I think it made me hyper aware of probably what I was doing. Yeah, you know, I could give examples of, um, yeah, for sure, I didn't necessarily have any idea how fast I was running, but I I knew, you know, I knew exactly when I was fit, when I was fit, what it would feel like to run up a certain hill or uh, running a certain route, how easy it should be. Um, you know, I remember doing sessions and um, the, you know, certain hill on the the route we used to do, and thinking, yeah, I I you know got up there could speed up off the top that I know that means I'm fit so yeah I think that kind of that real it, it wasn't done out of a, a love of training or any reason it was a, a real performance decision to to think how can I do this in the best possible way for me and you went pretty deep on on your swim week and and what that looked like and with your riding, right? Obviously, you you said about that that famous session that you would do with with the group and and occasional hill reps and 
outside of that, everything was super easy. Like, you know, like you said, you would, you would rarely average even 200 watts for, for a lot of your riding. How much riding were you doing though? Because if you're doing 35 hours or 30 to 35 hours every single week and then, you know, 35 hours plus on, on your bigger weeks, I assume you must have been doing quite a lot of volume on the bike. Yeah, 15 hours plus every week, I think. So, yeah, averaging 15 to 18 hours probably in a week. And then on the same on the run, like you, you were doing the one track session every week, but how much total volume would you have been doing a, a week um, a, around that? So for most of the year and most of that, I'd be running every day um, for at least an hour a day with a long run on a on a weekend so you know you're probably up to eight nine hours there on average when i was really kind of pushing it in the periods in the lead up to olympic games i was double running um running twice in a day five days a week so um along with the riding so i, I guess that would take me up to 12 hours of volume or something like that or maybe a bit more yeah, so you were probably riding like, you know, sort of 500-ish Ks and, you know, 100 to 130 Ks a week every single week. Yeah, I think on kind of average, the one thing, our um, our, our average speeds in Yorkshire are very slow. <laughs> not that it matters from a physiological point of view, but yeah, so my Ks might have not been as much as they would be in some other places, but yeah, the hours were going in. Do you think there's something to that that like the obviously where you ride is very hilly and the the roads are pretty dead and then where you run it's like it's very like sort of traily and hilly again do you think there's something to like easy aerobic training in environments like that versus like say hypothetically right if you were just training in the dubai desert and it's like this just you're just only training on at like at sea level on these flat roads do you think there's anything about that environment that made you better I think from a performance point of view, there's many ways to skin the proverbial cat and I think different things suit different thing, people at, at different times. And um, so we're all unique individuals. I, I think from a psychological point of view, it always really suited me. You know, I enjoyed kind of the variation of it, always never riding or running on a straight road, always approaching a corner or going up or down a hill always having something interesting to look at. Um, I think from a physiological point of view, yeah, possibly. Um, there was definitely times where really hilly rides made it also the other way, you know, could make it a bit hard because you're almost never doing aerobic training. You're either freewheeling somewhere down a hill or going a bit hard up a hill. So having the discipline there to to do that in the right way, I think is also important. And but yeah, I think ultimately it is a individual thing, and um, the fact that it worked for me—I don't know whether it's chicken or the egg—but happily, happily, it did work out, and it suited me. And then something I, I really have wanted to talk to you about since I was, you know, like about nine years old, Alistair, is the way that you changed the game of triathlon. And there, there's obviously been many people along the way who have changed triathlon, but again, and and not to not to bulk up you too much here, but no one's changed triathlon in the way that that you have um and and still like your footprints are all over triathlon as we watch it as current fans so even for people who maybe weren't fans of the sport back in this period when when you were unbeatable they they wouldn't realize it but 
a lot of the way that, that people race these days is literally shaped by things you were doing. And, and that was, that was what was so sort of fascinating about watching you race is the way you would race. It wasn't just how good you were and, and, and the races you won, but it was how you were winning them. And, you know, you were the first guy to ever swim aggressively in the front of the race and, you know, never leave the, the top five of, of, of a swim pack. And it didn't matter whether the, the swim broke into a three-man group or a 30-man group. You were always right there at like first, second, third, you know, in the water. And then you would sprint through transition one and get onto the bike and ride as aggressively as anyone in triathlon has ever ridden out of T1. There still to this day isn't, isn't a human who's done what you've done out of T1 on the bike. Like you are just famous. Like there's nothing more iconic than you riding your bike, like absolutely max out of T1 with your, your shoes, not even in your bike shoes, yet, your feet, not even in your bike shoes yet. And just absolutely hammering it and they're just being this you know like three four man line behind you where no one's actually got on a wheel yet you're all 20 meters separated and everyone's just going absolute max and and you trying to make the race as hard as you possibly can as early as you possibly can and you know distance the the runners who are 30 40 seconds down out of the swim and gather this group of of people who want to work hard and, and try and win the race together and then you know whether that would end up happening and you would come into T2 in a small group that had worked hard for 40K or whether it was with, you know, the whole field, 50 blokes coming into to T2, the same thing. You would exit T2 as fast as anyone. And and you you did this thing that had never been done in triathlon before where you would just like drop a 240K at the first K of a 10K almost every time you race. Like you would just absolutely destroy the field within 1K of, of, of the 10K run starting. And by, by 1.5k into the, the 10k run, there would be just almost always yourself and maybe Javier Gomez or Johnny Brownlee or whoever's running well that day. But very often you would already be by yourself and, and, and you'd won the race and just like broken your competition. And I've talked to a lot of people who you've raced against. I know a lot of people who you've raced against. And that's a word that commonly gets brought up is that you would break people and, and you broke a lot of athletes in that period and mentally and physically. And, and a lot of people just didn't think they could compete with you. And the aggressive way you race made everyone almost scared to race you at the time, you know, maybe barring a, a, like a handful of people. Was that, was that something that just evolved naturally over time for you? And, and you sort of just found yourself racing that way, or was it something you were doing in training? Did you always see that, that was the the way you were going to race and and did you train to do that or is it is it just like is it innate is that kind of racer nature just in you i don't know entirely how i guess recently that came about um i i think you know i just obviously grown up and done a lot of triathlon and um improved quite quick from the years about 2008 to 2000 2006 2009 um, obviously, growing up seeing Javier and racing with him, and um, he probably was the first person to really smash down those first Ks in in a run, and saw him do a race like that. Race like that. Um, but I think in in lots of ways outside that, I probably it, maybe not benefited is the right word, but um, I was doing things that were unusual um, because I didn't have too much kind of perceived triathlon wisdom influence on me. Um, I was much more influenced by 
the training I was doing at home, um, swimming with the people I was swimming with and cycling with the local people and doing a bit of racing and, and, and running with the squad and, and running racing. And so actually having that kind of wider triathlon influence that didn't hit me as such um, was a benefit in in that way. And I'd, I'd, even within the kind of British system, I'd always very much done things my own way. I, was, I thought, you know, this is the way I need to train. Um, this is what works for me. I'm going to do it this way in Leeds and kind of crack on. You know, not at the time, it was pretty much unheard of that a British athlete wouldn't spend the winter in South Africa or Australia or somewhere in in the warmer parts of the US. And I was like, no, I can stay at home. I can do the training I need to do. So I think it was, and a lot of that, I guess, was stubbornness <laughs> and arrogance in some ways. But um, yeah, I think not having that influence and not kind of um from a technical point of view people would say kind of a, a regression to the mean um i didn't have that influence so I, I was just purely making an uh, assumption and trying to work out what gave me the best odds of trying to win races so yeah thankfully i was i'd be like right i'm gonna swim near the front or as near to the front as i possibly can i'm gonna get out on the bike and and ride as hard as i can for the first uk because I know that's where my strengths are, um, swapping from one sport to the other early on the bike when other people are in the red. And then I'm going to make a decision on what's the best kind of tactic for that race and, and just keep doing that as, a, as I went along. And then inside that, another like the probably the, the like outside of dominating races, probably the thing you're most famous for is is your aggressive sort of way of communicating with people you're racing against. Like it was just... Mate, it was just my favorite thing ever. It made triathlon so fun for me. And I would be like a young kid um, watching you race. And I would be literally looking forward to you guys getting into a small bike pack so that I could see you sort of yelling at your competitors. And like, I never knew what you were saying at the time. Still don't know what you were saying, but I would always just love it. Like, I just loved the no one on that no one in that race it was just this thing where no one in the races wanted like seemed or appeared to want to win as as much as you did or wanted to compete as much as you did like that you there was just some years riding up that hill in madrid where the camera would be on your group and you're just yelling at everyone and i didn't know whether it was encouragement or whether it was you know getting in their heads and and talking a bit of shit and it would just happen all the time like it was just like you were a different human when you were when you were on a on a racetrack like you would listen to you talk and you're like the coolest calmest bloke that that the world's probably ever known and and you never raise your voice or you're always just so so collected and then on the racetrack it just like it sort of to me at the time appeared like racing just let out this like animal inside you um could you sort of take me inside that that version of you yeah i mean i think it was it was pretty much just right um what's going to give me the best chance of winning this race uh, making sure I motivate the people around me to also work with me. Um, I think a, a lot of the time I just couldn't understand why <laughs> why people uh, also couldn't work and and pedal and um, you know I guess I guess and why they wouldn't want to uh, make that situation work to the best of their advantage. And I think probably over the years that became um, it was probably more uh, accepted that actually yeah you could race that way because you know go back to 2009 people weren't used to um breakaways and like you said that form of racing fast forward to 2011 2012 2013 and a few years afterwards 
people were used to that and people you know were backing themselves that if they that they could make a breakaway stick that was their best chance for a for a race but yeah i guess i was also aware um that i was racing only a couple of people in the race and um i don't know how many other people in that in those races actually actually even really wanted to win or want to come top three i always thought oh i think that person will be happy with six or that person will be happy with eight um and but i think people started to believe well actually no i i can um i can do better here i could come top three if this happens and if this happens and if this goes well I think people start once people started believing. Um, it was yeah, it, everything worked better. And that is funny you say that. Is there is there any like athlete that you remember particularly giving like a, a spray to? Like, is there one that sticks out in your mind where it was just like you were in a group with them or or whatever it was, and they weren't working or they were you know they they were doing something in the race that to you just seemed sort of like stupid or like why are they doing that and yeah is there a, is there a spray that you gave that stands out no i don't think i think it all blurs into one now <laughs> <laughs> there's just been so many of them uh, and then if we if we go to that race in london like obviously you had a few injury um, issues in the lead up and and like there was some again some sort of famous training uh stories about you running underwater and and that kind of thing in the lead up and um, and sort of in a rush, like a race against the clock to, to, to make it to the start line fit um, that, that day at the London Olympics. But was can you talk us through the, the training sort of specifically close to the London Olympics? And then ultimately, can you, can you talk to us about the race? Because like I've said a, a couple of times now, um, in, in my mind, that's the best race a, a, a human's ever done in the world of triathlon. Yes, yeah, so uh, like almost everything in my career it definitely didn't go to plan I had a tear in my Achilles in January of that year um and that was yeah really difficult at the time because yeah everything had been going pretty well um you know been running some I think 10k and some cross country and I was like yeah this is this is perfect place to be and yeah I had a tear in my Achilles got told I needed to spend a few weeks in a boot and then recovery um, so I spent a bit of time in the boot, thought, right, I need to, what can I do to make sure I keep some kind of shape? Um, and so I remember doing sessions in the boot on the turbo at the time, um, breathing rarefied air from a from an altitude generator to do mega hard like VO2 sessions, even though I couldn't even pedal properly. Um, but to be honest, I, I did the rehab. It was um, it was a super stressful time at points. I was still getting swelling and pain in, in my Achilles over a few weeks. And it thankfully went away over, over a bit of time. And, um, and then I just started training and building up. And yeah, I think there will have been a block there. Um, that it'll have been nice to, if I actually did record it when I started, I had the underwater treadmill fitted in my garden. Cause so I was like, right, need to get, need to get the volume in, need to get running again, need to get cracking. And uh, if I stick an underwater treadmill in my garden, there'd be absolutely no excuse uh, for for not using it. And yeah, I was really ramping up um, volume and running on the treadmill. Then I think that's when I'll have hit forty plus hour weeks with big bike blocks and big run blocks. Um, quite often doing two hours a day, split into two run sessions and stuff. So big, big volume training. Um, and then I. I actually returned to full-on running really quickly um, as soon as I could 
get back running on the track and uh, I'd, I'd missed some racing in the early part of the year and my first proper race I did was a World Series race in Pittsburgh that I ran at, at, at we was a, actually a big pack coming into T2 and had a great run to win that race and I remember thinking um, there was various coaches on the side of the course telling me to slow down <laughs> And uh, I think uh, you know I was winning by the best part of a minute. I thought, no, I'm not going to slow down. I want everyone to look at this result and think, basically, it's impossible to beat when it comes to London. So I kept pushing as hard as I possibly could, and that race had went well. And then I think maybe the Olympic Games were eight weeks after that or something, and I was spending most of that time at, at altitude in Samaritz, which was a um, kind of standard protocol by that point. That I'd tried and tested two or three times in terms of spending time at altitude and times at home into the Olympic Games. And the training went perfectly for those six weeks too. So thankfully, you know, I say um, absolutely that the one of the best things about my uh, career is I managed to stand on two Olympic start lines knowing that I was in the best possible shape I could be in. And yeah, in London, I you know, I, I stood there and thought, yeah, I've done everything I can today. I've, you know, couldn't have asked any more for my training in my body or the support team around me. I've just got to go out and execute. I remember that Kitzbühel race well because, like, like every triathlon fan at the time, like you were the guy. You were who everyone sort of was following, and and to watch you, like, I don't know, like, there's been a few, you've had a few famous like uh, finish line stories, like where you've come across the finish line not knowing where you are and you know, barely conscious and that kind of thing, or sometimes not even conscious. Um, but that Kitzbühler race, like, I, I'll just never forget it. Um, you, you were like, you came across that, like down that blue line and you were just sprinting. And like, I don't know if I've ever seen this amount of spit on someone's face. And it's just like, I remember thinking like, oh, fuck. Like, that's what I thought at the time. I thought like Alistair is unbeatable here. And it's just, it's just quite funny like or interesting to hear you say from your point of view that that's exactly what you wanted your competitors to watch that and think because that was exactly what I thought. And, and I'm, I'm sure I've got no doubt that a lot of people watched that race and thought, oh shit, like how are we going to beat this guy? Because it wasn't like, that was a stacked field. Like Johnny came second that day. Your brother, Johnny, Johnny Brownlee came second that day and, and Javier came third. And like you put in, I think you put in a little over a minute on Javier who everyone was like, it was like, it was you or, or Johnny or, or Javier that were going to win that day at London. And you know, you like, you really dominate that race. You were a minute faster than them over the run. And that wasn't, that wasn't a, a very easy course at Kitzbühler and you ran sub 30 there and those guys were all close to like 31 minutes. And, and then um, if you can sort of like, can we sort of go through that, that day at London? Like, can we, can we do like, it's, it might be hard for you cause it was so long ago, but can we sort of go, you know, minute by minute and from, from when you sort of went to bed the night before to, to when you crossed the finish line and, and do like a little bit of a, a race recap for us? Yeah, sure. So um, we were, the race was in Hyde Park in London and the Olympic Village was over in Stratford. So we decided to stay in a hotel on the edge of the park, which which was nice. It meant we were literally staying on the edge of the park, got up that morning, um, went and had a, very uh, relaxed breakfast at the hotel. I'd actually slept well the night before. Um, we had breakfast. I can't really, not that much of note. I remember just after that sitting on 
um, going to see Johnny in his room and we just sat on the hotel bedroom and he's watching the BBC News and I think the news story was basically the roaming reporter walking around the Hyde Park interviewing people asking them how far they'd come that morning to watch the Brownleys and <laughs> we kind of I think one of the, I think Johnny turned to me and just said oh we better not F this up because um, there was a massive amount of you know an enormous amount of pressure both um, obviously most significantly from ourselves you know knowing that that was you've got it's obviously cliche that the Olympics comes around every four years but a home Olympics comes around once in a lifetime so um, that was it and um, actually you know for me it was a massive relief that I'd done all the training I could and there was no reason why I shouldn't go out there and perform to the best of my ability but I think in other ways that pressure can be enormous on your shoulders as well because there is no reason why you shouldn't perform so there's an enormous amount of pressure um obviously no Brit had ever won an Olympic medal um and there was a pressure from it's almost hard to think now but a pressure from that sense as well that um there could not be any more British program if we effectively didn't win medals on that day the whole thing could could go after four Olympics of no medals so there was a, there was a lot riding on it really and um yeah, so, but we could stand there and joke about it. Went down to the start line and, you know, did a normal thing in transition. And this is an anecdote I tell a lot. I remember going out on the course to do a bit of a spin to check the bikes were, you know, all good and, and warm up a bit. And um, just the thing that really stood out was the crowd was just amazing. Uh, having this incredible wave of noise just following us around as we were doing a bit of a warm up. Um, People sat, had made signs, you know, seeing old school friends and people who had come that we knew from local running clubs and all that kind of thing. Just the most amazing positive experience. Um, although, as you can probably guess, I'm probably looking at it with rather rose-tinted glasses now. But at the time, I was probably shitting it. But no, I think it was <laughs> mostly positive. And um, yeah, I, I remember being in the call room waiting to go out onto the start line and our um, good friend who had done loads of training with by this point and been on the camps with uh, Richard Varga sat on a plastic box that was meant he was meant to put his clothes in and fell straight through it breaking the box which was quite funny and there was all these people taking it very seriously and um, we were laughing which I think was probably a very good sign um, so yeah then in terms of the race we were started on, on one side and pretty quickly the um, the race went out hard and from going around the first boys that we knew were going to be tight um we went past a line of five or six people to get on the back I think I ended up coming out the swim fifth or six um and the last person to make a small lead group that we rolled around on the first lap the thing that stood out for me was again the enormous crowds uh, you know I was kind of present enough to enjoy the crowds on the side of the course and go past Buckingham Palace um, we got caught by a slightly bigger group of 20 or 30 people. And really the only person I was watching that race was Javier Gomez, who was next to me pretty much for the entire thing. Anyway, uh, there was a point on the bike where Johnny told me that he um, had got the penalty. And, you know, that was that was pretty rubbish. I don't think either of, either of us had had a penalty up to that point. So, yeah, um, that was bad. And he said to me, yep. You know, just focus on what what you've got to do, run like the wind. Um, and then hit transition two. I was really focused on making sure that I 
didn't incur any penalties and that was that we um i remember it'd been a clean transition hit the front pretty soon and obviously like you said i was determined to take it out hard um by this point i knew you know my my running was in from i knew from sessions and various things i knew my running was in amazing shape so ran out hard and um i remember johnny coming round me with about a kilometer after the first kilometer and slowing it down and i let him stay there for about 100 meters and ran back around him and and i knew right that's a really good sign um because that means that um that means that you know this is a fast pace um and yeah i'd looked at the clock the finish line clock as i come into transition as you can tell i'm probably obsessed with a bit of time and clocks and speeds and then as we went through the first lap i realized that we'd done a lap in um pretty much seven minutes flat um so i was like yeah running really fast here i knew that was whatever 248k pace i think um and you know like yep we're moving moving quick um and yeah then going through the second lap again i knew i think just over 7 10 7 14 or something to give a, a 5k just over 14 minutes um, and it wasn't a super fast course either. It was, you know, kind of up and down a bit, dead turn, few corners, um, cambered, cambered paths and stuff. Um, but the crowds were just incredible, like 10 deep, really amazing. And anyway, obviously Johnny dropped off and um, took his penalty. I managed to gap Javier Gomez just by pure attrition of running as fast as I possibly could. Um, and I'd actually practised for... Uh, time and time again I'd actually done a run on a Monday where I did a build run at times and practiced sprinting over the last uh, kilometer so I'd practiced and practiced what I was going to do over the last kilometer when it came to the Olympic Games um, if it came down to a sprint so I was pretty confident but with um, I think two kilometers to go one of the coaches shouted the gap whatever you know it's nine seconds or 11 seconds or something and I was thinking, wow, I've got two kilometers to hold on to, to nine seconds to win the Olympic Games. And and then, yeah, made it. I remember running up the last few hundred meters and, um, yeah, seeing friends from school hang over the barriers and, and people cheering and crossing the finish line. And, um, yeah, got across the finish line. And I obviously didn't know that Johnny was going to come third because of his penalty, but I, I think I was pretty confident he was. And it was, um, yeah, just amazing to sim- see him come across the line in third place. Throughout that run, was there, because this run was just insane. And, and like, I seriously just got goosebumps listening to that because I've watched that race so many times. And for everyone who, who wants to, that, that race is available on YouTube if you just search, like, Men's Triathlon 2012 um, Olympic Games. And the way you describe that, like, it, I don't even know if it quite does justice to how crazy you, you guys were running there. You three just went off on the front of that run and, like, I, I would hate to know because you, you guys weren't wearing, wearing watches, were you? But I would hate to know what you did that first K in. Like if that first K wasn't closer to 2.30 than it was 2.45, I'd be very, very surprised. Like you, you literally just – it was just so insane. And then it almost just looked like no one – there wasn't a point in that run where anyone sort of relented really. Like there wasn't 
there wasn't a single point where like you guys sort of started looking at each other and for, you know, a whole K or whatever came to a standstill. It was just like, it was just a hammer fest for 10 K and it was pretty much entirely um, dictated by you. And th- that is interesting to hear you say that part where, you know, Johnny came around early cause I can like picture that vividly. And yeah, it was sort of like you were just unwilling to, to let the pace drop that day. And like you were prepared to run as fast as you could for as long as you could. And like, and blow up Javier Gomez and, and even Johnny in the process or like just absolutely die trying. Um, and, and when you were in that run, was there ever points where it felt like that? Did, did it ever feel like, oh, I'm not going to win this. Like I've, I've started to feel shitty here. Like, um, or, or did you ever have self doubt in that run or did you just feel great the whole time and knew that it was only a matter of time until you broke um, Johnny and Javier? Definitely. I don't think I'd say I had self-doubt. I was pretty confident I was going to win. Um, And I was like, I'm going to make this as hard as possible. And, you know, if anyone is going to have a chance of winning, it's going to be really hard for them. And my best chance of winning is making this as hard as possible for everyone else. So that was my tactic. To be honest, the only, yeah, there was no self-doubt and no thinking, you know, this is hard. I want to stop. I was just completely focused and I always thought with my uh, very best races, um, completely kind of focused on being in the moment, just pushing as, po- pushing as hard as I possibly can and not thinking about anything else, complete laser focus on what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I do. I think I remember thinking uh, I'm kind of surprised that these guys have held on for this long. <laughs> so apart from that I think that's the main that's the only thing but yeah I might have made that up and then in the next sort of period of your career like it's sort of maybe it, it's tricky because it's quite a big period but between London in in 2012 and and then Rio in 2016 where once again I, I guess you you were a heavy favorite to win London like you were just completely dominant there there was no doubt in everyone's minds that on your day you were unbeatable. And that that rhetoric sort of changed a little bit going into Rio, largely because you'd had periods of like huge periods of injury and, and inconsistency in your in your training and racing um, relative to, to maybe the, the the period leading into London, although we do know, like you've just talked about, that wasn't that wasn't perfect either or completely smooth sailing. But you did ultimately, like you said, turn up to Rio in, in some, like, again, the shape of your life, you were clearly the favorite, but just a little less clear and, and went on to, to win that race, probably from the outside looking in even, even easier than, than what you won the London Olympics and become the first person to, to ever win two, two Olympic games. And, you know, you were the first person to ever win Olympic an Olympic gold as, as a favorite. And then, then you, you became the first person to do it twice. Can you can you take us in in the same way in your build up to the Rio Olympics and had your training changed much or were you sort of still following the same training approach that that got you to to winning gold at London in Rio? Still following a very very similar training approach. Um, I guess I knew I hadn't been quite as consistent, but I knew if I could get it right, I could still be in the shape that I had been in London. Um, almost identical in terms of training philosophy and the kind of weekly training and build-up I was doing even spending similar time at altitude that kind of thing um I I did have a bit of a hiccup I think three or four weeks out I had just a bit of a uh, an Achilles kind of just a tiny bit of inflammation that I had to have a bit of two days off running and go aqua jogging which was a bit of a 
a hard one on the head at the time, but I kind of at the same time I knew I was super fit, um, and my running sessions were um, were pretty good, you know, and and so I knew the the body was in a good place to go out there and perform. Um, yeah, and I, I guess the only difference was we did do a bit of specific training for for Rio. I, um, I t- raced on the course, seen the course. I had this insight that. Um, we could make a massive difference to the race in the first um, 2K. I think that's all it was at a transition to the top of the second hill. And we trained with the, with the viewers who were training together to make sure we absolutely committed with everything we've got to that, to that point in the race and what happened after that would happen. So we did a bit of specific stuff around that, but apart from that, nothing else was different. Talking to a friend of the show, Aaron Royal, about that race um, because you guys um, formed like an early swim breakaway, and there was like a there was a really good, like a, a good working group of strong swimmers that that got into T one and and went off early on the bike. And I was talking to Aaron about this this race as he was obviously one of those guys in in your little front break breakaway. And he talked about the the specific training that everyone was doing for that Rio Olympic course, and the the real like point that everyone was focusing on was the 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 short um, the short steep hill in the bike course, and so they were doing lots of sessions where they were trying to mimic that, and they would do sort of this like tempo-y effort on the flat into a, like a really really hard effort up this short. Um, but very, very steep hill. And they would just do that on repeat to replicate the Rio bike course. And he was telling me how he was super confident going into the race that they had like um, specifically trained for that bike and, and he was feeling really good about that. But then when the race actually came, that you guys completely changed, like you, you guys completely um, destroyed the race for everyone around you because you didn't approach that that bike ride in the way that everyone anticipated the people to do it, which was to sort of, you know, ride solid but not crazy into the hill and then everyone would have like sort of a race up the hill and, and that would happen on repeat. But but Aaron was recalling to me that by the time you got you guys got to the hill on the first lap, everyone was cooked. So in your lead group, everyone was absolutely destroyed. No one wanted to come around and do a, a turn up the hill. Um, no one, like after you guys went, over the hill the first time wanted to do any more work in in the group and and that everyone was just on the limit and it was because of yourself Alistair and what you did where you went out of T1 and you just rode like a tempo that was so high before the hill that everyone was absolutely destroyed was that what what made that tactic come about because you've obviously just said then that you did it by design no one was expecting it so yeah how did you come up with that that sort of tactic to do that I'd done the the race, uh, the test event before, and you know I, I always knew in triathlon there's a there's windows of opportunity, and one of those is coming out the swim, and especially if it's a relatively so, slow swim, you have to really make the most of that. So I kind of felt that it was a slow swim. Um, you know that if it bunches up, I think it'd actually pretty much come out the swim next to Aaron and Johnny. You know, so three of us together means that it's slow. You want it to be lined out in a single line. Um, and I'd had this kind of idea from the year before um, and told the other guys I was training with eight weeks before that this race could be won and lost in the first two kilometres of the bike. I, I remember telling them we were stood on the side of a road in uh, Samaritz training 
we were going to do a, a bike session. I said, well, we're going to do something different today rather than, you know, start off steady and build into it over a prolonged period of time. We're going to start off absolutely max for the first five minutes and then we're going to go match up a hill and then we're going to come down that and keep on riding hard. And they all looked at me like I was a bit mad, I think. But um, <laughs> that was the, uh, that, that, the, the philosophy was that we had a real window of opportunity to make a difference there. Um, and actually, I wasn't that bothered because after Javi was injured, I wasn't that bothered about the other guys in the front group. I was bothered about some of the faster runners, people like Mario Moller and Richard Murray, probably from, coming from the group behind. So what I was interested in is splitting the race up um, but more importantly, trying to ride fast. And you don't ride fast by going tempo uh, tempo on the flat and then blowing your legs up on a 30-second effort on a hill. Um, you know, you, you get yourself two seconds on the hill and then lose 30 seconds on the flat bit. You ride fast by riding a high tempo, holding your power into the hill, not going max up the hill, but just holding speed um, and and pushing over the top and getting back up to speed as quickly as you can. And so that was the, the philosophy behind it, really, and, and putting everyone under pressure. Do you remember being inside that bike ride um, that day where it was like, you know, obviously yourself and Johnny were there and Henry Schumann was there and um, Vincent Louis was there and Aaron Roy was there. Do you remember being in that group and could you tell what, like, now that you've you sort of heard what uh, what Aaron was saying about that, that every single person was cooked in the group, and and he sort of recalls that they that, that they were saying it to each other, like, "Holy fuck, what's that?" Like, Alistair is fucking killing us here. Like, we're all like, "This is this is too hard," type thing. Do you remember the talk in the group that day? Do you remember feeling like, you know, like, "Oh, I'm hurting everyone here," and but I still feel good, or or does it just is it so far ago, like so long ago that you don't remember those specifics? No, I don't remember those specifics. Um, I was really focused, like I said, on, I guess, the group behind. And I knew there was a time gap behind that was, um, I can't remember entirely, but I think it was 15 seconds or something to that group behind, which was really close at the time coming out the swim. Um, because we, we were also having super fast swims in that area with quite often Richard Varga on the front. Um and so I was like, oh, that's close than we'd like it. And then we went round to the next lap and the next time gap I saw, and I think it had gone straight up to 45. And my, yeah, as kind of confident and crazy as it sounds, I saw that time split and thought I've won. Um, <laughs> that's wow. a race over. And um, yeah, it carried on going out. And I, I guess the, the group then worked well enough uh, together to keep, to keep us moving. And it was... All, all worked well but yeah that, that was my focus it was more focus on um building that gap to the group behind uh and then keeping it keeping it moving so that we had a, a good gap going into t2 and yeah at, at that point i guess i was probably focused on what johnny was doing because I, I thought he was probably going to be the biggest threat to to me winning the race and then obviously after that you're a two-time olympic gold medalist in triathlon which is, has never happened before and and you're without question there. You're the you're the greatest triathlete to to have ever lived. That no one's questioning that at that time, and it's not even close. There's not a close second. There's no one else in the conversation really. It's it's you standing uh, on that pedestal by yourself. And not only are you the greatest to ever do it, you're you're also the greatest single day racer. Where like no one could could argue that 
Alistair Brownlee's best day is the best we've ever seen. It still is. It still is without question. But but it like it was even more cemented at that point. From then to now, I guess I like I guess I'm sort of putting your career into these like periods of like the period b- between Beijing and London and then London and Rio and and Rio and now. And this period is is obviously completely different where you you haven't had like you you haven't had the same level of success as what you had for the you know the 10 to 12 years beforehand and it's been up and down and you you've gone and tried your long course you've tried 70.3 you've you've still done some olympic and sprint distance racing and for anyone else probably like or almost anyone else the period from rio to now like would you would be, you would retire so happy with that career. Like we know your 70.3 um, world champ, uh, world champs performances on a couple of occasions and some Ironman wins and, um, you know, like a, a sub eight hour Ironman here at, at Ironman bustled in Australia and some, some actually like underrated performances at the Ironman world championships, but far, far below what people expect of Alistair Brownlee. Can you, before we go into specifics on, on this period, can you talk me through what happened after Rio and, and, like where your like where your head was at like did you want to make another olympic cycle did you go well i want to try and transition to long course and and win kona or win 70.3 world championships or where do you go after being like a two-time olympic gold medalist the best to ever do it like where do where does your motivation come from what do you want from the rest of your career at that point after after winning that second olympic gold I think, yeah, I was very much ready to move on and focus on long distance at that point. I think the first thing was my um, body in lots of ways was pretty knackered. Uh, I, I think I probably hardly ran properly for six months after that in terms of having probably, I think both my Achilles weren't great. Um, and so that's a prolonged period of, of not being able to, to run and train as well as being really busy uh, doing other stuff outside sport. Um, as you can imagine, there's lots of opportunities at that point. And yeah, you've got to decide whether you're going to take, um, kind of do them or not. And, um, yeah, so I spent a lot of time probably, probably not training, um, for the first time in a long time. So yeah, so so there's that, um, I wanted to focus on, on long distance. And so I guess went into the next year looking, starting to do some long distance, um, although I, I still thought of. You know, I'll keep my hand in and do a little bit of short course just in case, um, just to keep my options open, I guess. But re- yeah, really, my, my focus was on long distance from that point. And so, in 2017, like obviously, was the year that you raced your first, um, your first long course races, and yeah, it was a pretty good start. Like you, uh, I, there was a little bit of talk at the time. It was quite weird, I felt, but there was talk that you weren't going to transition into long course as well as some other athletes. Like that was definitely out there being talked about. And I don't know whether it was because of the injuries at the time, like whether people saw your body as a bit fragile maybe for, for long course racing. But but yeah, in 2017, you still like had a pretty good year where you, you won your first two 70.3s and um, you, you still won like a WTS event at Leeds that year. And, and then, you know, 2018, you, you went on to win a few more 70.3s and come second at the, at the world championships in like 
you know, one of the most famous 70.3 world championships of all time where you've ran 107 and, and still have only come second. Um, and, and then to, to back it up the next year and in 2019 and, you know, you, you won your, your first Ironman and you won two Ironman races that year and, and came second again at the 70.3 world championships. Like you, you've had success at, at long course triathlon at, at, and, and it still sort of gets talked about like you haven't. Like people still talk about your long course career as if it's been almost a failure in a way and, and it's, I think it's because people like see your short course career and go like, well, look how much success he's had. He's the best to ever do it. That, that your, your, your pedestal is almost too high that, that like what you've done in long course there it really does cement you as one of the better long course triathletes of all time, but it's just not the Alistair Brownlee who was in the short course racing. Do you agree with, with that sentiment around your long course career at this point? Or do you think that that rhetoric is like completely unjustified and, and sort of a more in my camp where it's like, well, that's like Alistair is fucking good at long course triathlon. And maybe he isn't quite as good as uh, at this point as what he was at, at Olympic distance racing, but you know, he's ran 107 and, and come second at a world at 70.3 world championships. And really without a little bad patch in that probably should have won it. And, and then the next year he's won multiple Ironmans and backed up with another second at, at a 70.3 world championships. Yeah. I think for me, of course I would have liked to have done better for sure and had more results. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the short answer to the question. So going forward, do you, do you still like, I think again, I, I I don't want this to sound like it has negative undertones because it, I'm still really like high on on your long course aspirations. Like I don't think your career is done, but I think I think a lot of people are talking about you like, well, maybe your career is done. Maybe your body's seen too many miles and 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 done too many 35 hour training weeks. But where do you see yourself right now and and going forward? Yeah, I mean, oh, I mean, obviously, yeah, there is a lot of miles on the clock, and I like to um, joke with all my friends that I've had a very hard paper round, <laughs> and I might not be that old, but um, maybe my training age is quite old. Um, but yeah, I'd, I would have, of course, liked to have won more, and um, I would still like to win more. You know, really, my focus is on winning the biggest long distance races around, which is the. Ironman world champs um and I, I think now the pto races at that distance because yeah I, I think that middle distance really is probably the most competitive distance in triathlon at the moment actually in terms of you know if you get everyone on the start line pretty much all the top guys from all the different codes of triathlon can do it which is exciting and kind of amazing really um so yeah that that is where my focus is at and yeah i mean ultimately um it's kind of funny, actually, because if you ask me the question as a 20-year-old, uh, would you keep on racing and um, or or retire when when you possibly don't think you know you can be as good as you have been before? I would have you know, I'll have been well and truly retired by that point. Um, you know, I think the 20-year-old me would have said, nah, if you've won twice and that second one's in Rio, you'll be retiring the day after and going to the pub." Um, <laughs> but that, that hasn't happened, and now very much kind of changed that view i mean it's something i love training hard i love getting to the end of days knowing that i've done everything i can in that day to maximize my performance but in terms of the the training the, the other the performance science around it um that's really what i get up for in the morning um and, and still what motivates me is is trying to do well at long distance so 
that's um, that's what I'm completely committed to, to do as well as I can. And can we go into this a little bit? So we've obviously heard in, in good detail about what your training philosophy and, and your training structure was and the details around that when you were the best short course triathlete on the planet. How does that compare to right now? So current day Alistair Brownlee trying to win, you know, the Ironman World Championships in 2023 and the PTO um, middle distance races in 2023. What what does your training structure look like now? Has it changed much? Where is it, where is it different? Um, and can you take me sort of specifically inside it like you did with, with your old training program? Yeah, I still, I think, have a lot of the same philosophies in that, I place a lot of value on consistency um, across weeks. I place a lot of importance on progressive overload from from week to week. Um, do the same things of the, of each day of the week, pretty much every week, um, with a, a very kind of a broadly similar outline. I guess as as what we've already talked about. My swimming is pretty much identical, <laughs> and uh, I haven't changed at all. You know, there's definitely times where. I would have hoped I could get away with doing a bit less swimming, but I think swimming at uh, top flight long distance racing now is pretty much as good, if not sometimes faster than short course. So um, my swimming has got to stay where it is. Um, riding, I guess, similar volumes um, and running probably slight less volume, but um, I guess the big difference is I really try and prepare specifically for events. So, Whereas for a lot of my Olympic distance career, I would be training really similar and, you know, going to a French Grand Prix sprint race one week and then a World Series Olympic distance the next week. And I'd just be doing the same thing. You know, now I think for an Ironman, if I'm six weeks out, I'm getting, trying to get longer rides in, trying to get longer runs in, um, doing specific sessions um, for that. I guess what is that specific stuff? Um Long rides on a TT bike is important. You know, obviously, for Olympic distance triathlon, that very uh, on-off, um, graded different power becomes really important. Your ability to recover um, in between that and, and react to stuff. In Ironman is the exact opposite. Can I pedal really consistently at, at a certain output over a long period of time and hold area position? Um, can I base a, an efficient... Um, uh, not using carbs is my good train to absorb the carbs I need to train. Uh, can I be as error as possible? Um, so I guess sessions around that, which aren't particularly interesting, basically long rides with blocks of Ironman pacing um, and making sure I've got my nutrition really sorted and, and run, yeah, broadly similar. Um, a mixture of, I guess, some quicker stuff, but not as quick as I used to run. Um and because I still think it's important to have a, a, a relatively good top end in there. And when I get close to Ironman, I'm doing probably not a lot, but trying to build up to do some long runs. Um, and just just so you've got long mileage runs in the legs at a decent pace, um, maybe up to like 35K or a bit longer is the very longest run I'd do in training, I guess. And Alistair, in that, maybe in that, like back in that period when you were, you know, training for London Olympics and and then sort of like right now or or in your best builds into Ironman races, have you ever put much emphasis in brick sessions? Like um, whether that be swim to bike sessions or bike to run sessions or even swim bike to run sessions? 
No, I, I don't think I've ever done a swim bike session in my life, actually. Um, I a bike run session. I mean, when when I was really training hard, I would um, do the the my main after the my main ride, which is basically an hour of racing or whatever variation I was doing on that. I would do a very very short bit of run off, um, which was a maximum of like three by three minutes. But as you can imagine, I was running that absolutely max out, <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, literally putting my training on and sprinting off the bike. So yeah, and, and now yes, a very you know in in a big Ironman build, um, I'd probably do a, a few you know bikes, long bikes into short runs, short bikes into long runs, um, more from a kind of a technical point of view, making sure that my equipment's right, I've got my nutrition right, because um, you know I think Ironman. Whatever figure you put on it over short distance, nutrition's a really small percentage of your performance profile. Over I'm at it's evidently a very big percentage, you know, doing the technical stuff right, making sure that your um, aero positions are good and that you can run off it, make sure that your um, tri suit isn't going to chafe. Small, small, simple things like that, I think, become really important. And so, what do you have to do this year, Alistair, to, to win the Ironman World Championships? It's obviously it's not in Kona and um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say like you've had great races in the heat, but you've also had races in the heat that, that haven't been as good. Like you, you're maybe slightly more inconsistent in the heat than what you are in, in the cooler weather. And it's, it's probably going to be a little bit cooler in Nice. What do you have to do in training in the, in the year, in the lead up to, to achieve that same sort of level of performance as you have in the past at, at the Ironman world championships this year, if of course, that is the race that you you are going to target. Yeah, I think that is very much the race I'm going to target that uh, and the PTO tour events. I think, um, I think, yeah, I think first actually I've got to qualify. <laughs> That's the first uh, step, uh, and then yeah, really my focus is on being healthy and uninjured. You know, um, last year actually, basically the first time in a career of was ill. Um, never ever really been ill so yeah i think keeping healthy and um obviously uninjured and, and being consistent up to that are the are the key things i, I actually feel that uh, i've got a relatively good idea how to race ironman well now you know in terms of what training i need to do um how to things like pacing got my nutrition sorted out happy with my bike and my bike position all those kind of technical things so um I guess I guess they're all positives, um, uh, but yeah, I've never been a big fan of saying, "Oh yeah, it's been great, everything that uh, has gone wrong in the last few years," because I've learned so much. Um, I don't think racing is the time to learn much. <laughs> you, you can't you do that the rest of the time, and I think it's really easy for me uh, to think uh, to learning to be an excuse for failure when it's not. Um, you can you can learn and things can go well and you can learn in other times but yeah I think um, hopefully if I've got all that I couldn't write and stay uninjured um, have a consistent run into it um, I'd like to think if I'm on a start line healthy I can I can be competitive the thing with with you that everyone talks about and I've obviously talked about it a lot today is is the way you race and the the approach you have to your racing where in in your in a former life where you were the best uh, short course triathlete on on the planet, 
the the aggressive way you would race, the sprinting off the off the bike from T two, the insane bike speed out of T one, the making the start and the end of the swims hard. Like you just you have that racing nature that we've talked about where you were just like unrelenting, just like you just literally just broke fields. And it really has, again, from the outside looking in, it's looked like you've taken that same mindset that maybe it's just, it's just ingrained in you, like it's just the racer you are. And, and you've sort of taken that across to the long course racing where you, you've sort of done the same things where you, you, you swam more aggressively and have been part of really aggressive front swim packs and, and you ride the starts of bikes a lot harder. Like I reckon, Alistair, I've had 10 people on this show who have talked about you in this sense where when you're at a 70.3 race or an Ironman race, but but particularly a 70.3 race, the races are just different. The the the, heart, the start of the bike is much harder and it's sort of one of those things where, well, you know, Alistair might break the field or he might break himself um, in, in this race like because of the way you're racing. And I think it's been a bit of a knock on you is that, maybe your patience for the for the long course racing is is like or, or like the way you race and lack of patience in racing because you're just such an aggressive dominant racer um maybe that lack of patience or that that like racing pattern or behavior that's ingrained in you has actually come to hurt you um in in your long course racing where it was like your biggest strength in in your short course racing and, and what made you the greatest to ever do it do you agree with that? Do you agree that that maybe you have taken that approach to racing into long course and and you've like sort of blown up a little bit or hurt some of your races or made, made like maybe like I don't want to say this because it's like but like maybe like wrecked your own races a little bit from going too hard too early where where maybe you could have just been more patient and and won those races. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think um, it's a, a bit of a a process of finding out what's the best way to do things um and uh, yeah i think some races are definitely could have raced more sensibly i do think for you know really over long distance racing 70.3 is a bit different at times but definitely once you're ironman um i approach it that it's it's not really racing as such you're pretty much doing what what you can do um and if someone's going faster there's not a lot you can do about it so, um, you know, stick, and I guess I've been approaching that by sticking to a, a pretty kind of fixed plan or at least trying to. But yeah, I think in the past, you'd say possibly um, I could have raced in a different way and, and been more successful by being a bit less aggressive. And in 2023, in like your PTO races that you're going to target and, and at the Ironman World Championships, are you going to approach your racing differently? Like, will we see a, a more patient Alistair Brownlee in 2023? And, you know, fingers crossed if, if you have a consistent year of training where you're not sick, you're not injured and, and everything comes together for you. Do you think that will be part of, of like, uh, ultimately having successful races in, in, in 2023? Definitely. I think long distance racing is a massive amount about pacing and, racing sensibly and really knowing where y- your limits are um and so yeah i, I think um i think probably I'd, in the past had good and bad races of sticking to plans uh, pacing things right uh, racing less aggressively however you want to describe it um and yeah i definitely need to find the sweet spot of finding making sure that i'm uh swinging the odds in my favor of winning races but at the same time 
doing it in a, a consistent and uh, manner that's going to mean that I most likely get to the finish line in the best possible way. If you're in Australia and still haven't figured out exactly what races you're going to do this year, you should seriously be considering racing Hell of the West Triathlon on March 26th. Hell of the West is an iconic middle distance race that's been going for 32 years. The two kilometre swim, 80 kilometre bike and 20 kilometre run take place at Gundawindi in Queensland. Honest and hot conditions make for fun, challenging and fair racing. If you want the Ironman experience, but not the price tag, Hell of the West is your race. It's only $230 to enter and is a non-for-profit event held by the Gundawindi Triathlon Club. It's one of those events where you go into the town and seriously feel special. The locals really get around you and out on course, it's packed. It's got a way more exciting spectator-heavy run course than most of the big Brandon races. It's like the whole town comes out to watch. There's parts of the run where no matter who you are, you just feel like a pro leading a big race. It's pretty special. They also have some of the best volunteers of any race you'll ever go to. Like it really is just a wholesome event where you feel like royalty the whole weekend and particularly out on the, on the course on race day. It's got a big prize purse for the pros with $5,000 for first, $2,000 for second and $1,000 for third. And there's PTO points on the line. So if you're a young pro in Australia, skip Geelong 70.3. Don't do it. Head to Hell of the West instead. Get yourself some money. Get yourself some PTO points. It's the Queensland State Long Course Champs and there's events over the weekend for the whole family with a 5 and 10 kilometre fun run, an enticer triathlon for the teenagers and a hell of the West kids triathlon for the younger kids. It's professionally ran with timing, great commentary and has one of the all-time fun Saturday night after parties where anyone who raced is welcome. Again, when you've raced and you go to it, the locals make you feel like you've done something special and you walk away completely reinvigorated with a love of racing long course triathlon. Head to hellofthewest.com to enter or just to check out a few more details about the race. I'll also chuck the link for it in the show description. Hell of the West is one of the best race experiences you'll ever have. It's a race I'm always telling people is one you've got to do at some point in your triathlon career and there's no time like this year. And then I guess what like we all want to talk about and it's like the talk of, of triathlon at the moment is the Norwegians and Jan and yourself and, you know, even now like Magnus Ditliv and, and Sam Laidlow and Maxie Newman. Do you look at your competition at the moment when you race? Do you look at what the Norwegians have done in 2022 and, um, you know, the the popularity that they've gained and, and this sort of unbeatable um, facade that or like, uh, you know, people people do truly believe that that if Gustav Eden starts up at an, on an Ironman start line that he's probably unbeatable and that if, if him and Christian are on an Ironman 70.3 start line that they're, they're pretty much unbeatable and that, you know, Jan's not going to be able to come back and beat them and that Alistair Brownlee definitely isn't going to be able to come back and beat them. Do you hear this and... Do you? What are your thoughts on on what's happening in in long course men's triathlon racing at the moment? I think it's what's happening is it's a super competitive era for sure, and um, you know it's pretty uh, amazing to see that, like, like I said earlier, that uh, actually I think you know long coursing really is so racing is some of the most competitive, if not the most competitive racing, I think in existence, which is which is cool and and great to see for the sport. Um, yeah, and it, I think that's the answer in terms of what's happening. And it, 
it's super competitive and yeah i guess what motivates me is to get out of bed is to try and beat the best people on their day and have have races that um you know are, are the best that i possibly can do um and motivated to do that by seeing other people perform well and, and you know that's kind of what it's been all along for me what why the olympics was such a absolute obsession because that you know is the ultimate trying to get it right on that day and in Ironman that's the Ironman world champs and the PTO tour events um but I, I think in terms of that that change my approach probably not as cliche as it's as it sounds you know my focus really is um always been you know what today this week this month can I do to maximize my performance and and get everything right i possibly can and i genuinely don't tend to worry too much about what other people are doing and i can only do what i can do for sure you know i can learn off um how other people approach things i can learn from science and and other sports and other people and other influences but at the end of the day you have to be really focused on um on what you're doing and put all your effort into making yourself as good as you possibly can do make sure you get to that start line um in the best possible shape you you can be and ultimately uh, as, as as you keep saying as long as you execute uh, the best you can on that day in the best possible manner that's that's all you can do and then i do want to sort of pick your scientific brain and like I love hearing you talk about training, Alistair, always have. Um, and I sort of asked a bit of a loaded question before, knowing how deeply you think about training just from watching you talk about it or reading things you've written about it. Do you look at what's happening with the Norwegians at the moment? And everyone's obsessed with it. Like everyone is obsessed with what Christian and Gustav are doing and everyone's obsessed with the Norwegian method and their approach to training. Do you look at it and and have you looked at it and do you – do you think that there is anything groundbreaking or new that they're doing? Like obviously they're big proponents of volume and testing and um, and like tra- like monitoring training intensity and, and nailing their zones that they're training in. Do you look at everything they're doing and do you go, well, I'm going to go have conversations with people. Do you try and find out what they're doing? Do you try and like investigate and see if there's anything you can adapt into your own training or is it not really like that for you? Do you sort of see it and be like, well, I've been around this game for, for long enough. I know what everyone's doing and um, I know what I need to do. I try to run a sensible balance between uh, understanding, obviously from a, uh, kind of interest point of view, uh, how people are training and, and what ways, um, obviously just to, to maximise what I'm doing and from a general interest and fascination in sports, um, in triathlon, in endurance training, in human performance. So I think I've got a pretty good idea um, how, I guess, most people train in, in different ways. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately there is many I think there's lots of different ways to train. There probably isn't one way that um, is optimal. I, I think people are individuals. I think what motivates people um, is individual. I think how the human body responds to different stimuli, stimuli because ultimately that that's all we're doing. We're creating stimulus to to drive adaptation is individual on, on different levels. Um, yeah, I think... Um, Ultimately, there's actually the 
really what we're talking about at this level is the differences probably at the edges of what most of us are doing. You know, we can talk about training philosophy, but um, most people's training is built on doing quite a lot of um, aerobic-based work in a decent amount of volume. Um, and we're talking about whatever that is, 10 or 20%. Um, what intensity do you do that at? How do you measure that intensity? Um, how do you prescribe that intensity? And how do you adapt that over time? Um, and, and so, yeah, I think for uh, proper nerds looking at how to maximize what we're doing, it becomes a really interesting discussion. I think for most people, actually just go out and train it doesn't matter what you do <laughs> um so from a, from a different perspective so yeah from an interest point of view absolutely but i'm always trying to balance that with a point of view of making sure that um a, you know real kind of central tenant of my approach has always been to really focus on on i guess myself and try and work out what i need to do to maximize my own training every day um yeah, I, I mean, mostly that has been hampered by by injury over over the last few years. You know, I haven't definitely haven't been anywhere near a start line where I've been at my kind of maximum fitness. And you've talked about uh, like a few different things that you do. Like you've you've brought up altitude quite a few times. We've talked about the underwater treadmill and um, so, some other things that that you've done, like optimizing your diet. And and you talked about the the high altitude room while you were while you were while you were training a few times. What what are the things that you believe in outside of just these fundamentals of swim, bike, run, and and you know your your consistency and your progressive overload that you talked about? What are some other things that you like are just non-negotiables for you in a preparation to a race to get the most out of yourself? Like, is it being at altitude? Is it your diet? Is it your sleep? Is it other things? Um, and and can you take me through what you do to be at your best outside of your training? Or, or even it can be add-ons to your training that are just, yeah, like I said, non-negotiables that you need to have in your training program to be the best that you can be. Yeah, I think the vast majority of it is what we've already covered. It's consistent training over a long period of time. Um, and then, you know, a focused period of uh, specific training to the event. As, as I guess we already covered for Ironman. You know, I think obviously there's some important kind of, I think, fueling adaptions there, um, time spent on your TT bike just the muscular endurance and, and kind of biomechanical ability to hold that position and be, comfortable moving for that period of time so i think the the specific so i think the training bit um is covered off as boring as that is um and yeah i mean we haven't i guess talked about recovery at all and i, I think um recovery is massively the majority is good quality with a decent length of sleep every night so you know trying to sleep um i guess nine hours maybe a bit of time in the day if i'm really pushing it as well um, I think the the rest of most of the rest of um, uh, recovery are put down to nutrition, so eating well, um, plenty of protein, plenty of good fruit and veg, um, good meat, um, plenty of tea in my diet. <laughs> um, so again, nothing special, but just making a a, a special um, uh, a special kind of effort to to eat well. Um, and, and really fuel between sessions and um, actually some of the big camps I've done I've you know had a nutritionist with me cooking for me the whole time to 
really make sure and nail all that. And yeah, I think if you're sticking to recovery, trying to keep your body healthy, I think um, strength and gym work plays a part in that. I think good physio plays a part in that. And I think massage plays a part in that. So all of those have definitely become, become more important. But um, I, I think as well, going into Ironman for me, real non-negotiable is just making sure as that all my equipment is absolutely 100%. You know, you haven't done all that training, gone all that way and gone hours into an Ironman to make sure to, there's something to go wrong. So, you know, making sure that your equipment's working, that everything's supercharged, that everything's tested. You're never using something for the first time on race day, all those kind of things. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important thing for long distance racing. And to sort of start wrapping us up here now, Alistair, what race are you specifically targeting as we speak right now? Uh, I'm not entirely sure at the moment. I want to do an Ironman to um, qualify for um, Nice. So I'm, I'm hoping, I'm feeling pretty good at the moment and I've been kind of building up over the winter and I feel like I'm in a good place. So it's either going to be, um, it's, yeah, hopefully an Ironman in, in, in March or April to qualify me for uh, nice um, and then my focus will shift to the um, the PTO tour events and just like as my final question can we can we take a look inside the last training week you did like obviously if you've got an Ironman in in potentially March like you're 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 like pretty pretty like much in the thick of it as we speak right now I assume or getting getting towards that um, can you maybe take us Monday to Sunday through your last training week yeah um so yeah monday is swim in the morning um 45 50 minute run a couple of hours on the bike gym physio in the evening tuesday swim hard um what did we do this morning mostly based on hundreds kind of like a i guess a, a vo2 type session um and then pretty a hard running session a mixture of uh tempo roadblock i think we did 16 minutes of tempo threshold type running on the road followed by 200s on the track 200 work 200 kind of hard 200 float um and then a two like two hour ride wednesday is all long aerobic swim bike run thursday is a swim kind of 3k of tempo threshold type work in the morning um 60 70 minute run uh and then a some kind of bike session in the afternoon friday is normally an easy day swimming gym saturday building up a run uh to to be kind of a bit of a session more i specific longer running and sunday oh with the ride in the afternoon and sunday is uh long aerobic ride and probably some kind of longish aerobic run quite often on Sundays at the moment we have these local rides called reliability rides which are not supposed to be races but they turn into kind of 100k races on open roads <laughs> which are quite fun and I, I I guess quite good Ironman training so I've been doing those. And just on that just the the last questions I have is on that that Wednesday or for example was it Wednesday or Thursday when you're just doing the I think it was Wednesday when you're just doing the the long swim bike run and 
and then on Saturday when you're doing the Ironman session, how long are those like easy aerobic, longer bikes and, and runs for you uh, in this week and uh, at like the week we're currently in? And, and like how, and then the session on Saturday, what does, what does your Ironman run session actually look like? So um, the, on the Sunday, yeah, I guess I'm building it up. I wouldn't say I've started any specific Ironman type training yet, but I, uh, four hours with blocks of intensity in um yeah various kind of Ironman and if, if I'm doing a um a local ride so I've kind of done a hard ride and a, a bunch of uh, uncomfortable riding and then probably blocks of Ironman pace after that maybe um the run on a Saturday morning I'd say yeah we're, we're just kind of building in into that building up we actually last Saturday because it was a bit shorter because um, it was so ice cold and everywhere was frozen in Leeds. So we actually couldn't run on the normal trails we run on. Um, so we're running on the road. It was, we did five by two Ks with quite a lot of running around it. So it ended up being 20 plus Ks probably in total. Um, five by two Ks at um, kind of a decent pace off a short rest, 45 second recovery just to keep moving. But I guess more, more normally that would build up to kind of long tempo progression runs with good like warm up and cool down um to to get the distance in and just the the very last thing alistair is all of this self-coached or or do you have a coach at the moment no i have um yeah every morning to swimming and um the swimming coach runs the session and uh as a swimming coach i have uh, known I think since I was about 12 years old uh, that's really cool uh, again I, the, I kind of pull it together and um, do my bike stuff myself um, I have a, a run coach who supports me in other stuff as well uh, again who I've, I've kind of run with since I was about 12 years old as well um, and he supports me with all of that and yeah then um, a guy that helps me with my nutrition and um, performance stuff uh, called Nigel who yeah other performance stuff and, and nutrition specifically and we've done various testing stuff as well so yeah combination of people and yeah I, I've I guess um, with me being the ultimate person to pull it together. Would you ever consider bringing on a head coach like one of the big name triathlon coaches around the world or do you just like the system that you have there? Yeah possibly um, never say never again it's just a called in terms of um what i think to to um decide what i think works best and do you do you foresee like somewhere in the future or this year even for example do you foresee yourself like you know making a phone call or sending an email or catching up with someone and being like hey can i want to win kona this year can you can you help me for the next six months pull this together or is that just not on on your radar uh, i wouldn't say it's on my radar at the moment but um i definitely wouldn't say never awesome hey let's wrap it up there alistair um thanks so much mate i like i honestly can't thank you enough for coming on on this um i was saying <laughs> this might sound completely stupid but i was talking to my girlfriend last night about about this interview and and <laughs> i've told a lot of guests before when i first started this podcast alistair i wrote down this list and it was the 10 people that i most want on this podcast and or, or like what I sort of thought, like these are the 10 people. If I can get the, the, them, this podcast might actually be pretty good. And I didn't even have your name on it. 
And the reason why I didn't have your name on it is because I just thought it was so far out of the scope of reality to get you on my podcast that I started a year ago. Like I just, I just didn't think that was possible. To me, I've always had you up on a pedestal as the greatest to ever do it. Um, and like you're almost inhuman to me as, as someone a, a, like a bit younger than you at the time watching you race. And, um, and I was just, I was reflecting on this with her last night. I'm like, I can't believe I'm, I'm actually going to get a chance to chat to Alistair Brownlee tomorrow. And, um, and she, yeah, we, we were sort of laughing about that, how I literally have this physical list and the names on it, they're not the biggest names, but they were just like, they're biggish names, but with an element of realism on it. And, um, and this might sound like the stupidest thing ever, but yeah, in my mind, I, I always secretly had it that if, you know, if I could chat to one person and, and then retire happy as a podcaster, it, it would probably be you. And I was for, like foreseeing it happening four or five years down the track, probably when you're retired and, 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 you know, maybe people have completely forgotten about, about your, your races you did in 2009, for example, as, as a time I might get to chat to you, but for it to happen to so soon, mate, like it's, it's surreal for me and it's probably nothing for you. It's just another, just another podcast of, or another interview of the hundreds that you've done in your career. But yeah, for me, mate, really special. Um, I hope you can tell how much admiration I have for you as an athlete um, and, and how highly I think of you. And, and, and yeah, just thank you for taking 90 minutes out of your day to, to talk to me and, and come on How They Train. Pleasure. No, thank you very much for having me. And um, yeah, well, uh, yeah, thank you very much for uh, being so positive and glad I managed to make it on. Good luck for the year, mate. Uh, let's just... let. If you can just do one thing for me, mate, it's not a big ask. It's it's just to win the Ironman World Championships this year. So just make it happen. <laughs> I'll try my best. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Have a good night's sleep. Thank you. Bye-bye. A quick reminder before we wrap up the show that the competition I'm running with Pillar Performance, where you can win a free entry to any full distance Ironman race globally of your choice, a free one-on-one consultation with world-class performance dietitian and pretty handy triathlete herself, Pip Taylor, and a $200 USD Pillar Performance gift card ends on February 5th. So this is your last week to enter. All you have to do to be entered is simple. Follow the How They Train and Pillar Performance Instagram accounts. Once you follow both of them, bang, you're in the running. Also, remember to use code HTT20 at checkout if you decide to try Pillar Performance's Triple Magnesium and Ultra B Active. If you take your training seriously, but your sleep's not as good as it could be, or you don't quite have as much energy as you feel you should when you train, trust me, you'll be in the same boat as me and you will have wished you started taking them earlier. 